0: Amen. Thank you for being with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. It's a practice here at Redeemer that during the Advent season that we take a break from our normal working of God's Word. And so we'll be putting 1 Corinthians on the shelf and turning back to it in January. And for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at selected readings that help us orient our hearts around the Incarnation what it means for God to take on flesh and to make his dwelling among us. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 1 this morning and um, we're going to read verses 1 through 14. This is God's Word. Long ago in many times and in many ways God spoke to us by the Father, by the prof- our Father spoke to us by the prophets Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits? sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation amen let's pray together father in heaven thank you for your word and thank you that we can gather thank you that we can sing and pray and confess sins we have the privilege of giving not only of our resources but of ourselves and thank you lord that you are here you give to us, and you speak to us, and you forgive our sins, and you exalt your son. You adopt us as sons. You are making us after his image and likeness. Thank you so much for your grace and your love. And I prayed as we study your word, that as Mark has so beautifully prayed, that we would not only be hearers, but doers and believers. I pray these things for Jesus' sake, amen. So uh, the same couple that wrote the song In Christ Alone also wrote another song that is not as popular. And the name of it is Don't Let Me Lose My Wonder. And the song is a cry to God for help. The singer is crying to God because she wants to be forever moved by the beautiful things that we so easily take for granted in life. The singer is acquainted with this sobering truth that our wonder can weaken, that those things that are beautiful to us today can bore us tomorrow. And we experience this with a new home that we think is a dream home, and over time, we're bored by it. New shoes, a new child, new love, a new spouse, a new job. These things are beautiful and precious, and over time, we treat them as if they're mundane. The author of Hebrews is really combating that. The problem in the book of Hebrews is that beauty is becoming boring. The one who was wonderful to them is no longer as wonderful as he was at once. And we're not talking about shoes or clothing. We're talking about King Jesus. Jesus was at one point beautiful, and they're turning away from him to worship angels, to go back to the old sacrificial system, to resurrect Judaism, to want to reinaugurate the Old Testament sacrificial system. And the author of Hebrews is saying that nothing is better than Jesus. You can search high and low and you will find nothing that compares to him. And what I want for you above all things is to wonder in the Messiah. And in this chapter, it's obvious that they're turning towards some type of angel worship or angel idolatry. And you actually see it, right? Notice the reference to angels. Angels are over and over and over. And the point is that angels are one of many things that they are turning towards. And yet he says, to which angel did God ever call a son? To which angel did God ever say, come sit at my right hand? here's the thing the book of Hebrews is built around six warnings and you see it in chapter 2 verse 1 it says pay attention lest you drift away here's the thing we don't merely drift away from God we drift towards what we think is better than God in chapter 5 he says don't become dull of hearing we don't just grow dull of hearing we actually listen to things and voices that sounds better than he is he says in chapter 10 don't cease meeting together as is the habit of some don't keep sinning after you hear the truth we don't just stop meeting together as a body we actually think it's better for us to be in our couches or playing golf than it is to be with God's people on the Lord's Day We don't just deliberately sin, we're going after something we think is better than the Lord. And the good news is that the author of this book doesn't just warn them, neither does the author of this book say, get it together, get your wonder back. He does something better. He takes his time, chapter after chapter, showing them why Jesus is wonderful and worthy of worship. He reminds them that Jesus is truly better. Paul David Tripp says the wonder and awe of Christmas can easily get overshadowed. And the hustle and bustle of this season, we often lose sight of what's most important. When we become familiar with things, We tend to quit examining them. We quit noticing them. We quit celebrating them as we once did. Familiarity robs us of our wonder. And maybe that's you. Maybe this Advent finds you and your heart is busied. It's busied with photographs to take and postcards to mail. It's busy with sales to get. It's busy with gifts to buy. It's busy with Christmas party after Christmas party after program to run to. And you're not moved to wonder. And you're not moved to awe. Isaiah 9 says that a son shall be born and you shall call him Wonderful counselor, not just counselor, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Why doesn't he seem wonderful? And so that's my hope. My hope is that as we lean into our time in God's words these next few weeks, that if your wonder is waning, that if the beauty of the incarnation has become boring and trivial, she will be moved to greater awe. Now you might be asking, why in the world are we looking at Hebrews? I don't see Mary here, I don't see the angels, I don't see the incarnation. Like, what is going on here? Well, not so fast. Look at verse six. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. So that's it right there. It's as if the author of Hebrews has his mind on the Old Testament that is predicting the coming of the Messiah, but also on Matthew and Luke and the events they recount That happened around the birth of Jesus. It was when Jesus had been born that the angel appeared to the shepherds and said, Fear not, I bring you good news and tidings of great joy, for a Messiah has been born, and you will find him wrapped in swaddling clothes and in a manger. And this good news is for the whole world. And suddenly, a multitude of angels stood around them saying, Glory to God. God in the highest. And so when Messiah comes in, angelic activity increases to a way that it had never happened before. It is an angel who goes to Zechariah and tells him, fear not, you will have a son and you will call him John. It's an angel who goes to Mary and says you're going to have the Messiah. It's an angel who goes to Joseph who tells him do not divorce her for the child that she is carrying has been conceived by the spirit. It's an angel who goes to the wise men and tells them not to go that way to Herod. It's the angel who tells Joseph and Mary to get up and go to Egypt. It's an angel who goes them in a dream and says go back all that wanted to kill this child is dead in other words there is an orchestra where God himself when Jesus comes into the world he summons his angels and here's the thing they do what they have been doing from the beginning of time when the Messiah breaks into the earth he may be a baby but that is their king that is their lord that is their master and they do the same thing on earth that they have been doing forever, worshiping and obeying him. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing is when their wonder is waning, when this beautiful one now bores them, when they're on the brink of chasing wonder in inferior places, he says, let me tell you about your God. That's the antidote. It's not to say, let me get my wonder back. It's like, God, can you show me again why Jesus is wonderful? That's what he does. And that's what I wanna do this morning. I got two points, and then I'm gonna close with a question. How should we respond? Here's the first point. Jesus' coming is wonderful. Because it continues God's old pattern of drawing near and speaking to his people. Let me repeat that. Jesus' coming is wonderful because it continues God's old pattern of drawing near and speaking to his people. Question for you. When has something proved to be wonderful? Because it is enduring and durable when has someone proved to be wonderful because their faithfulness extends over long stretches of time it can be a grandmother who loved you well or a spouse who sticks by you and is steady or Toyota. (laughs) So there's a Toyota in Louisiana, I'm serious, there's a Toyota in Louisiana and the owner, the original owner got one million miles. Y'all heard me right. Same engine, same transmission Same original paint job. And the Toyota dealership in Louisiana had seen nothing like it before. And so they bought this man's Toyota from him, put it on display in their showroom, took months to take the original engine apart. And it was wonderful. Why? Because that car Did its job mile after mile after mile after mile after mile. And it's wonderful because of that. What the author of Hebrews says is God is the same way. He has been doing the same thing for ages, saints. Year after year. God shows up, and year after year, God speaks, and year after year, he just draws near. He is just steady, always there, always moving towards us, always revealing himself, and that's what he says. So notice the two verbs in the first sentence, long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke, So the speaking is the verb. But in these last days, he is spoken to us by his son. And so he is establishing some relationship by what the prophets have been doing for God forever. And then he's linking that to Jesus is coming. And he's actually saying, Jesus does not come in a vacuum, but Jesus comes as a continuous, continual expression of the same thing that God has been doing and that is drawing near and revealing and speaking to his people. Now, in long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to us by who? Y'all can talk back by who? Prophets. So God initially spoke for himself. He didn't need a mediator. He spoke things into creation and he talked to Adam and Eve and he told them, I love you. You were made in my image after my likeness. And this is what I'm like. And he told them, this is what is evil. And this is what is wrong. And if you do this, you will die. And if you do this, you will live. And so God is disclosing himself to them face to face. And you know the story. They sinned, they believed the lie, and they were judged. And then God says, but I'm sending a deliverer. And you're going to hear this from my mouth first. You're going to have a son and he will crush the head of the serpent. And over time, God withdrew. But God did not leave a void there of special revelation. God himself raised up the prophets. And what's interesting, if you go read Luke 11, because I think we think of the prophets, we think about Malachi and we think of Isaiah, we think of Jeremiah, we think of Hosea, we think of Ezekiel, we think of like the big popular prophets. But that's that's like a small portion of prophetic activity amongst God's people. We know this because listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, the blood of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world will be charged to this generation from the blood of abel to the blood of zechariah who perished on the altar and the sanctuary so jesus is telling us who the prophets are the prophets didn't begin with isaiah and they didn't begin with with nathan they didn't begin with jeremiah jesus actually says abel was a prophet all the way to Zechariah, the A to the Z, what God has been doing from the beginning of time is raising up mouthpieces of righteousness. And so God has been speaking through the prophets. This is why when you read Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, they kind of sound like they're saying the same thing because they really are preaching one sermon. They're preaching the same sermon from the beginning of time that God preached. Y'all are ratchet. Y'all go astray. You need a redeemer. You can't save yourself. And I'm going to have to cover you. You drink water from broken cisterns and you will be sent into exile. But I will never forget you. I'll bring you back. Like they're saying kind of the same thing, like over and over, spin a few words, turn a few phrases. Why? It's because God has been raising up many prophets. Now, what's the manner of God speaking? It says in many times and in many ways. In other words, God didn't do it one time, but he always had prophets. When they were yet a nation, there was a prophet in their midst. When they were in bondage, he says, I will raise up Aaron, a prophet for you, Moses, and he will speak. When they were delivered, Moses was the prophet. And Moses says, a day is coming when God is going to raise up another prophet from your midst like me. Listen to him. And when they went into the land, they had prophets. And when they wanted a king like a nation, they had prophets. And when their king was trifling David, they had a prophet. And when their nation was about to be fractured, they had had prophets and when the ten northern tribes were going astray prophets declared the truth to them and when the two southern tribes were the only two left they had prophets and when they were exiled into Babylon they had prophets and it was prophets who told them how long you're going to stay in Babylon and when they got back to rebuild God raised up prophets in other words wherever they went whatever they were doing in the heights of redemption and the valley of redemption guess what God always always did he always drew near to them always made contact always disclosed truth always held out hope always called them to repentance always lavished them with his words and he did it in many ways some prophets preached sermons Some prophets made little cities in the dirt and laid down and enacted prophecy. One prophet, Hosea, had to go marry a prostitute. You're like, come on, God, you're trying to preach to them through this? He says, yep. Because they're adulterers. And they don't understand adultery. And they don't understand my love for adulterers. And so your means of preaching is going to be through enacting a marriage where they are unfaithful, and it's going to show them something about my love. Many times, in many ways, God has spoken to who? Our fathers through the prophets. Do you see? God was always faithful to speak, never silent from general revelation, where no man or woman or child is without excuse, to special revelation, the Bible codified here, to preachers and prophets who were raised up to proclaim, thus saith the Lord, the coming of Jesus fits beautifully inside of that story. If you're here this morning and you think Christmas is God's sort of reaction to sin. If you think that Christmas is sort of this thing that just kind of happened, what the author of Hebrews wants you to see is it's not on an island. That invasion, that drawing near, truth coming towards us, God raising someone up to be a mouthpiece and a herald, that fits inside of the bigger thing that God has been doing forever. And that is what makes Christmas wonderful. God is being God and doing what God always does. And you know why? It's because of love. It's because of love. He will not leave you without hope. He has been drawing near. And Jesus stands in line of prophets raised to draw near. But there is discontinuity, which is our second point. Jesus' coming is wonderful because God does something completely new to speak and draw near to his people. Now, the reason I'm, I'm setting this up this way, the two verbs are speak. Jesus is speaking. The prophets were speaking similar. But notice it says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He's setting up a contrast as well. And what he's actually saying is the prophets spoke and they preached good messages and they wrote good truth. But God's greatest sermon, his greatest movement towards humanity is not in a mere mortal. His greatest sermon, his greatest movement towards us is his son. It's unprecedented. When have you experienced wonder? Because you experienced something that you had never experienced before. Maybe the first time you saw the Grand Canyon and not on TV or in a photo, but when you're like there on the edge and you see something beautiful. Or maybe it was when that child came out of your womb and that child has never ever lived before and now you get to meet this child that you have been carrying right or maybe it's the red rocks or maybe it's Paris or maybe it's some beautiful place or this new book that you have not read before but it arrests your attention that, that something you have not encountered captures your mind, and heart, and it's wonderful. The author of Hebrews is saying that about Jesus. There is something discontinuous. or It is not uh, in continuity with the saying about his coming. It's different. It's other who would have imagined that God would do this. Now, the significance of the Son's coming cannot be underestimated, and I want to dig into this right now. First, consider how the coming of Jesus impacted time. Did you notice it says that long ago in many times and in many ways? It says, but in these last days. You catch that? What is the last days? What, What is he talking about? Kruger says this, the last days does not tell us how much time we have left, but the kind of time we now live in. To say we are in the last days means that we are in the world's last period of time. However long it lasts before Jesus returns, this language in this verse means that we live now in a privileged time. This should give us a sense of urgency, a sense of awe, a sense of wonder that all the promises that they looked forward to, we now live in the time where God has made good of the promises. We are in the last last days. So much so that our calendars counted down towards the year of our Lord. And most of our calendars will say 2022 A.D. What does A.D. mean? It does not mean after death like I thought it meant when I was a kid. It's not dating it around Jesus's death. It's Latin and it's Ano Domini, the year of our Lord, the year of his coming, the year of his birth. And whether pagans know it or not, the calendar in their iPhones that they use. Preach that you're in the last days because Messiah has come. Do you get it? Who else can say that? Who else can say your birthday changed everything? Raise your hand. I will wait on it. (laughs) Not an angel. Only Messiah. Consider the unique identity of Jesus. Look, angels are impressive. So I'm not hating on them, y'all. I'm really not. They're the type of creatures. I mean, creatures, right? That show up and humans bow down and are tempted to worship. They show up, and Zechariah is shaking in his boots, and the angel says, fear not. They show up and tell Mary, fear not. They show up, and they always have to say, fear not. Why? Because if you see them with your eyes, you will be moved to bow and to worship. And here's what they're saying. He is actually saying, the angels... They bow to the Messiah. They serve him and those who will inherit salvation. So what's unique about this son's identity? Well, we see he is creator. Look at verse two, verse three and verse 10. Notice what it says in verse two. God has spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So that's verse two. He's talking about the son. The son is the creator. Go look at verse three. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Who upholds the universe right now? The same son who created. Go down to verse 10. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. The heavens and the earth will perish but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same. You catch that? The same Lord who created everything is the same one who upholds everything right now, and he is the same one at the end when this earth and the heavens pass away and will be changed like a garment. The same one stays the same forever. Did you catch what the author of Hebrews is saying about Jesus? He is creator. But that's not it. He's also God's beloved son. Notice how often son or "heir," or firstborn come up in this passage. And these are all direct quotes from Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. Look at what it says. But he's spoken to us by his son, verse 2. He appointed heir, verse 2, verse 5. To which angel did he ever say, you're my son? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world. So this image of God as son, and he's picking up on 2 Samuel 7. You know the passage where David wants to build God a house. And he goes to Nathan, I want to build God a house. And Nathan says, do whatever you do, what your heart is intent. And that prophet actually gave David wrong advice because then God sent Nathan back to David. He says, yeah, you're not going to build me a house. So don't do it. I'm going to build you a house. And when you die like your fathers, I will raise up a son after you. So this can't be Solomon because David had Solomon when he was alive. So this has to be some future son that's coming. And I will raise up your son after you and I will be a father to him. And to me, he will be a son and I will establish his kingdom forever. And the author of Hebrews actually says 2 Samuel 7 was not about Solomon. It was about the son of God who would take on flesh and you know when you look at old testament prophets you'll you'll remember these phrases the word of the lord came to isaiah son of ahaz isaiah 2 1 the word these are the words of jeremiah the son of hilakiah jeremiah 1 these are the words that came to ezekiel the son of Buzi. you catch the thing and what the author of hebrews is actually saying What prophet can say, this is Jesus Christ, the son of God. You catch that? This is why Luke traces Jesus' genealogy through David and then it ends with son of God. But he's not just creator, he's not just son of God. He's actually God, and the author does this two ways. He does it through poetic, flowery, metaphoric language, and then he says, you know what? Let's throw away the flowery language. I'm just gonna flat out tell you, he God, right? So notice what he says. First, he starts with this flowery, poetic language. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Okay, what does that mean? that light it's a source and the light emits these rays of light and they're the same right and that's what he's saying that that that, that god is light And the effulgent light that comes from God is the sun and they're one and the same. And then he says, and he is the exact imprint of the divine nature. This is the only time that word is used, the exact imprint in the entire Bible. And guess what? It comes from the language of coin making. And so if you were making coins in their day, you would have a soft metal that you might heat up and you would put it in a press and the press would have a die on the top and the bottom, and then you would strike it, and on that die was this imprint of an emperor's face and some lettering, and when that, that soft metal was struck with the press, With the die, then what you got was a transference of the image on the press onto the coin. That's how coins were made. And that's what he says, that when you look at Jesus, it's the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is God. Metaphoric, flowery language. And then he says, "Okay, enough of that. Go down to verse eight but of the son he says who's the he it's the he that comes from verse five for which of the angels did god ever say so now they're giving you a list of things that god himself says but of the son god says what to jesus your throne oh god is forever and ever that's god the father calling the son god Look at verse 10. And you, Lord, that's God the Father calling his own Son, Lord. You catch that? The author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is very God, a very God. Why? Why would Creator sustainer, the one that's gonna stay the same when everything changes in the end? Why would this unique son of God, who is God, look at what it says in verse six, come into the world as a child? Why? So Nintendo came out with this old school Nintendo. And we bought it a couple years ago. And I promise y'all, it's about this size. So if you, if, you, if you remember having a Nintendo like we did, you had the cartridges, and the cartridges themselves were about half of the size. And you had to kind of blow them after you played them real long. You kind of blew on them, and then you got like a Q-tip and cleaned it, and then put it back in just to make the video game work. And you had to get all these games that would take up an entire shelf, if, a shelf if you wanted to play them. And they came up with this thing where, all of the games are on this little system that's about this big. And so you, I, I'm the big kid when it comes to playing Nintendo. And you know what I love? I love Super Mario Brothers. I don't like the open-ended games where you just do stuff for 30 hours. And you're like, what you doing? I'm just building something. Building what? I'm building a fort. For what? Like, what are you trying to, what's the mission? Like, what are you trying to accomplish Give me a mission. So I like Super Mario Brothers because there's a mission. There's a mission where the princess has been captured by the villain. And when you start in level one, everything you do in level one, world one, world two, world three, world four, is to go and rescue the princess. It's a clear mission. I'm going to slide down slopes. I'm going to go down tubes. I'm going to jump over fire. I'm going to get big and get a star and be invincible. But everything is kind of moving towards the mission. we got to rescue the princess. Did you know that Jesus came on a rescue mission, saints? His bride was imprisoned and in bondage and in slavery. And God himself would step into time and space and become like you and me. For what reason? He says it. Look in verse three to make purification for sins that's the reason the Bible says without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins and in the Bible you had to offer the blood of goats and bulls and lambs and you had to have a priest who did this year after year after year after year after year But the blood of goats and animals and bulls could not cleanse you. They could not cure you. They could not give you righteousness. And so what Jesus does is take on flesh. Conceived by the Spirit. No sinful nature is passed along to him because the Holy Spirit protects him. And then he lives an impeccable, spotless life. And then he lays himself on the altar. And then he dies and sheds his blood that his bride might be clean. That is what Christmas is about. It's about the greatest gift coming your way. And you can't buy it in Dillard's. It comes from God himself. And it endures forever. And we know it is effectual because of where Jesus is right now. Notice what it says, that after he makes purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand. He goes on to say in verse 13, and which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand? What's the importance about sitting? Here's the thing. There was no chair in the temple for the priest to kick his feet up. You know why? He had to stand every year to offer sacrifices. He had to stand and offer sacrifices, stand and make washings, stand and move the bread around, stand and light incense. There is no evidence of a chair in the temple for the priest to sit. And the author of Hebrews is going to later say the priest stand every year to keep doing these things. But the son is seated. Why is the son now seated at the right hand of God? because it's finished it ain't no more work to do we don't need a priest anymore you don't need the blood of goats and bulls anymore because it has been finished by the lamb it's done that's what christmas is about It's about God being consistent to God and moving near. It's about God drawing near to his people. It's about God preaching the greatest sermon through the mouth and the life and the work of King Jesus. And it's about God, that same Jesus who is now seated and is finished. And we await the second advent when he comes and rolls it all up and makes all things new. And even when he does that, he is still going to be the same. Here's the question, saints. How do we respond to this? The prophets talked about the coming redemption. Jesus did it. They promised, he fulfilled. They spoke of righteousness, he lived it. They spoke of the latter days that were coming, he inaugurated them. They spoke of needing to be rescued and he did it. They spoke of God's character and he showed it. They spoke of the one that would crush the head of the serpent, he did it. They spoke of our deliverance from bondage and Jesus broke the chains. They spoke of God's love and he showed you. They spoke of God's dwelling with us and Jesus did it. Spoke to the fathers and now Jesus preaches a gospel message to the world how do you respond look y'all we don't even have to guess look at Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 he says therefore therefore what therefore in light of everything I just told you in chapter 1 This is how you respond, by paying close attention to what you've heard, that's the response. There's a difference between hearing and listening. Hearing is passive, it's involuntary, it's a sensory process where we're hearing sounds. I'm hearing some of you cough. Oh, somebody just coughed. I'm hearing pages turn. But you also notice you're hearing all of this in the background, but what your mind and heart is attuned to are my words. You're hearing the noise, but you're listening to God speaking. Listening involves effort and attentiveness and treasuring and doing more than letting the sound of words go in our ears. It's letting them go down into our minds and holding it and drawing it near and believing it. And that is the response. Take it in, rest in it, believe it, hold it, cherish it. In this season, when it is easy to pass the garden of redemption, no longer impressed, take some time to smell the roses. Touch the petals. Draw near to God. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We thank you that Christmas is wonderful. You are so consistent and faithful and steady. And Christmas reminds us of that. You've also done something different and unprecedented and unimaginable. God took on flesh. Creator became created. Son became servant and slave and priest and our sacrifice. Father, during this week, draw our hearts and minds to these words, and may we be moved to greater wonder and awe. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.